Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 2 Kings. After two weeks in the New Testament, we are in the Old Testament this week. 2 Kings is roughly in the middle of the Old Testament. If you've reached the Psalms, you've gone too far, go back just a little bit to your left. After the five books of Moses, you'll want to keep going on to your right through the historical books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings and 2nd Kings. This week and next week we'll be finishing up this series on a better kingdom, and then shortly we will begin a series in 2nd Samuel on David and his kingship and the events uh, of Israel. But our text this morning is 2 Kings 6, beginning at verse 8 through verse 23. If you would please give attention, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Kings 6, beginning at verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. But when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? 
he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, that you would open up your word to us. That we might see in your word the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we might see your will. That we might do it. Lord, bless us as we come to your word. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We have been studying the difference between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom's of the world. And our intention has been to focus on a better kingdom, the kingdom of God. First, we saw that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. It is not like the kingdoms of this world. It is a mistake to see it that way, just as a more powerful version of the world's kingdoms. Then last week, we looked at the prayer, your kingdom come in which we are taught to seek Jesus' kingdom. It is a kingdom of grace and glory. It is a kingdom where God's will is done. It is the kingdom of our hope, where all our fears are done away with. If this is the nature of Jesus' kingdom, then why are we ever confused? Why would we ever look away from the Lord to our circumstances? One of the answers is found in our text today. We look away from God's kingdom because we fail to see it. We can only see Christ's kingdom by faith, which is why the world is blind to it. But sadly, we too can forget the power of God. We can be so absorbed in the sights of the world that we are blind to what God is doing. We will not know God's work on our behalf until we begin to see the unseen. And so this morning, I'd like us to see three things from our text. First, in verses 8 through 14, we see a blind world. Then, in verses 15 through 18, we see unseen protection. The protection that the Lord has given that is unseen. And then thirdly, in verses 19 through 23, we see an unexpected mercy. A blind world, unseen protection, and unexpected mercy mercy. As we come to this text, it's important for us to see the context of the story. If we were to look through the first six chapters of 2 Kings, we would see that Israel and Syria are back at war again. 
They have been off and on at war with each other. These are very dangerous times for the kingdom of Israel and its people. Now, we don't know the exact time of this conflict in 2 Kings 6. We don't even know the exact name of the king of Israel. And I think that's intentional on the scripture's part. Because it forces us to think about a pattern of life, not a specific instance that we can pass over. But this is indeed a time of trouble and difficulty. Israel's army is obviously not a match for Syria. I haven't been to the military academy, but when your military strategy is to run away from wherever the enemy is, you are not a match for them. And that's what Israel had been doing. That's how they had been kept alive and intact as an army. The Syrians would go to a place and Israel would be warned that they were there and they would avoid that place. Everything is difficult. Everything is discouraging. Where could their hope be when they can't hope to defeat Syria? Does that strike you as at all parallel to our times? Perhaps as you watch the news and you hear discouraging report after discouraging report. You wonder how success could ever be had. How your enemies could ever be defeated. How attacks come upon you day after day, week after week. So I think we can commiserate with the Israelites. We can identify with them and the challenges they have because we live in days of danger and challenge. But the Israelites had uncanny help. Look with me at verse 9. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. Elisha brings warning to the king of Israel. And he doesn't just do this once. He does it over and over again, we see in verse 10. And the scripture describes it as more than once or twice. Over and over again, Elisha sends warning to the king of Israel. Now, what we need to remember is this is undeserved help. Elisha initiates this with the king of Israel. And if you know anything about the history of the prophets of Israel, Elijah and Elisha, you know that they were constantly under attack from the kings of Israel. Not from the kings of Syria. From their own kings. The kings attacked them because these prophets called the people of Israel back to God, away from idolatry, away from sin. And the kings of Israel were not fond of this because we know from the history of Israel that the kings of Israel were wicked men. They sinned continually. They did not follow in the commandments of the Lord. And yet, Elisha brings comfort, aid, and help to Israel. He is a one-man intelligence service. You don't need James Bond when you've got Elisha. He is completely in charge. As one of the Syrian king's servants says, I think almost half-heartedly, he knows what you say in your bedroom, Lord. Now, we see what God is doing here. He is keeping his promises 
to the people of Israel. But the Syrians, they don't understand this at all. They think this is all a matter of worldly power. Because after all, they don't believe God exists. So how could they believe that it's by God's power that Israel's being saved? There's sarcasm in the king's voice in verse 11. Will you not show me who is for us? Who of us is for the king of Israel? Now, it's interesting. One of the hardest types of words to translate from one language into another is a preposition. Because prepositions can serve multiple purposes. You know, if, if you think of the, ver the words upon or on or to or against, they, they can serve different meanings depending on the context. And this is one such preposition. One of the ways this could be translated is that the king said, Will you not show me who of us is against the king of Israel? It's like, is there anybody here that's on the right side? They can't imagine what's going on here. Everybody must be leaking our plans. Because there's no other way to account for this. That every time the army goes out, the Israelites are gone. This is the way of the world. It is blind to God. It doesn't see history as having a purpose, being driven by the providence of God. It makes no allowance for God. It only sees power, and it's blind to everything else. Are you drawn into this way of thinking? It's easy when everyone around you is saying, look over here, look over there. You have to actively resist this way of thinking, or you will be drawn into it. Well, next we see how foolish the world is when it cannot see God. It's not just blind to God, it becomes actually blind to reality as well. The Bible makes this point over and over again. To fail to see God is to be a fool. Because God is real. And he is the creator and sustainer of all things. And so to be blind to him is actually to be blind to reality. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, the psalmist writes. And the Bible tells us that men would rather sit in darkness than see the light. We see this all around us in the world today. Science cannot account for the origin of the universe. But they are sure it is not God. Men don't understand the difference between people and animals, but they are certain it is not because people are made in the image of God. The world is certain that a belief in God is foolish and irrational, and yet the world is constantly showing us its limits and its failings. We have no better example of this than the past year. Think about all of the reports that we have been given by science on COVID. How far apart should you be from someone? Is it six feet? There are other reports that say it's three feet. I just saw a report this week that actually, if you spend enough time in a room, it's 60 feet. Can you catch COVID by touching a surface someone's touched? Or do you not need to bother with sanitizing anything anymore? 
You see, we've had all sorts of reports back and forth and contradictions. Do masks work? Do they not work? Should we sing? Should we not sing? Do we speak? But you see, it's not because there's some sort of wicked conspiracy involved here. It's because we just don't know. Science doesn't know everything, especially about something new. We like to pretend that we know everything, and by invoking the name of science, we can have certitude about everything, but that's just simply not true. So the Syrian king, with his own version of certitude, there's no way anyone could know where my army was unless my people were betraying me. He approaches this problem like any other problem that he would. He assumes it's all a matter of power, of having more might, more information. And that all he needs to do is to bring the appropriate amount of power to bear. And that will resolve the problem. Now, do you see how foolish this is? He doesn't even think about the reality of someone knowing where he is going and trying to solve that by surprising them where they are. Think about that for a minute. His solution, because Elisha knows where he's going to be all the time, is to surprise Elisha where he is. Now, why wouldn't Elisha just not be there? That's what you and I would say. But, you see, the king of Syria has discarded God. He's discarded reality. He's only thinking about power and tactics. The king of Syria can't understand this because the idols that he serves can't see, can't speak, can't hear. They have no power. They are vain. They are idols. And so he sends troops to a place to prevent the discovery of the troops at the place. Now, what we need to understand here is that no one can harm God's people outside of God's will. But that's a fearful statement because it requires us to trust God, to trust that he will protect us and preserve us and that we are safe as long as God wills it. One minister has put it this way, you are immortal until the day that God calls you home. He knows the exact number of your days. But this, of course, is a problem for us because it doesn't mean that we are safe in the way that we define safety as long as God wills it. Because God may will a plague to come upon us. He may will an economic disaster. He may will suffering and war. We don't get to set the parameters of God's will. And so it's a fearful thing for us to place ourselves wholly in the hands of God. But then the second thing that we see is unseen protection. Now, the Syrians come and they surround Elisha, and this is what we expect. After all, they don't believe in God. Why would they think that God was going to be at work here? Why would they look past the world's power? But next, 
something important comes to happen. In verse 15, we see Elisha's servant wake up and go outside. And behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, the servant goes outside and he's struck by this astounding sight. He's been surrounded by this mighty army and he is immediately terrified and helpless. Now, I will consider that it has probably been some time in your life since you have said the word alas in public. But yet, this is a very important word here. You have said this word as it's translated at other times in your life. We could translate this word, oh no, you'll never believe it. Oh my, that's what this word means. He's shocked, he's afraid, he doesn't know what to do. And then he asks this next question, what shall we do? Now this is not trying to get advice from Elisha the prophet. This is a cry of hopelessness. There's no way out. What could we possibly do now? This phrase is used several times in the Bible and it always has that meaning. What shall we do? What could we possibly do now? Now, we need to stop at this point. And remember that this is Elisha's servant. Elisha's servant had seen God at work. He, God had told Elisha where the Syrians would be over and over again. And Elisha had saved Israel. And this servant should have known the saving acts of God throughout history. He should have known about Elijah on Mount Carmel defeating the prophets of Baal. He should have known about God preserving David in battle with Goliath. He should have known about Joshua and the battles in the promised land. How God conquered through Joshua and his army. He should have known about Moses and the Exodus. There is plenty of proof for this servant that God is at work and he protects his people. And yet, he's still afraid. Because he can't see anything but the enemy. What he can see is all that's there for his mind. The Syrian army is all that there is to see. Does this kind of thinking grip you at night? Especially when news story after news story tells you of bad thing after bad thing that's happening and will happen to you. Of economic depression, of war, of murders, of riots, of chaos, of deadly plagues. All we hear is how bad the world is and that there's no hope. When you're alone at night, do these fears grip you? You need to take your eyes off of your circumstances. You need to know that there's more there to see than that you see right now. The reality is what's important. And so Elisha tells his servant the truth here in verse 16. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now the servant is in a panic, but you have to hear Elisha's voice here. It's completely calm and poised. He knows exactly what's going on here. He's not in the least bit afraid. 
And Elisha wants to show his servant how God governs the world. He wants his servant to know that the invisible is far more powerful than the visible. And so after he tells him the truth, he then shows him the truth in verse 17. He prayed, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what God does here is he shows Elisha's servant the truth in a way that he can easily understand. The concept here is that God is protecting them, that God is mightier than the kingdoms of this earth. That the Syrian army is nothing up against God. And the way that that is pictured is by an army of flaming horses and chariots. It's easy then for the servant to say, what you said was right, Master. I can see them now. Look at this army. The Syrians don't stand a chance. There are more with us. Now, this is where it's hard for you and me. Because often, God does not show you the horses and the chariots. You have to learn to lean on the truth that's in verse 16. Sometimes he will show us verse 17. But oftentimes, what we have is his word. Was what Elisha said in verse 16 any less true or powerful before the chariots were revealed? No. The chariots were only revealed for the weakness of the servant. We must see the world through God's promises and through God's truth, not just through our eyes. All around you, voices are shouting fear. They're pointing to the visible and ignoring the invisible. As Christians, we must trust our Lord even when we can't see. That is what our profession of faith is. To trust the unseen. To trust our Lord. Then there's a second prayer. In his first prayer, Elisha prays that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant and in this second prayer, he prays that the Lord would close the eyes of the Syrians. Now, do you notice what happens after the first prayer here? God opens the eyes of his servant. And then in verse 18, the Syrians came down. They still attack. When the servant's eyes are open, that doesn't make the problem go away. That doesn't mean the end of circumstances. No, the Syrians still come down and the attack still comes. And if we're reading up until this point, we could say, oh, I know how this story is going to end. The flaming chariots are going to come down and cut through the Syrians. It's going to be like a scene from Braveheart. They're going to be yelling, the Lord, and wiping out all of the Syrians. But do you notice that's not what happens? I think sometimes that's our frustration with God's providence. Because God's providence is not our providence. God doesn't act the way we think 
He should act. In the great victories of God, God always shows his might by dismissing ordinary worldly power. We might think of the Israelites at the Red Sea when God brings them back up against the water with the Egyptian army bearing down on them with no weapons, with no way to defend themselves, with no hope except in the act of God as he parts the Red Sea and brings them to safety. We might think of David and Goliath. Goliath, the champion of the Philistines that no Israelite soldier would dare to face. And David comes to him with no armor because he can't bear it, with no sword because he can't carry it, and he comes with a sling and stones. And he says to Goliath, Who are you to come and mock the living God of Israel? We might think of other instances, but God's ways are not our ways. God doesn't need to muster power to be effective. And so what God does in verse 18 to the second prayer of Elisha is he blinds the Syrians. Now there's an irony here because the Syrians can't see anyway. They are blind to what is going on. But God strikes them with a blindness. It's actually a judgment. It is more than simply the inability to see. This word for blindness is only used in one other place in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 19. And it describes how in Sodom, the mob was struck with blindness and how they clawed at the door to get in to Lot's house. They were confused. They were thrown into disarray. And that's what happens here to the Syrians. This is evidenced by their following Elisha later. They are confused about what to do. This is our mighty God. This is the God you serve. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you have a mighty warrior who fights for you. In Isaiah chapter 9, we have these names, these couplet names of, of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And one of them is, he is called Mighty God. And the word for mighty in Hebrew actually means a warrior. A mighty, powerful warrior. Jesus has told you that we will overcome the world because he is greater than the world. Not because we have the best techniques, not because we write the best books, not because we have the best programs, not because we pass the best laws or elect the best politicians. We will overcome the world because Christ is greater than the world. How often do we attempt to use the same weapons that are arrayed against us in this warfare? Do we judge our hope by worldly power? If we stop and see the unseen, God's kingdom, why don't we hope in it? You need to put your trust in Jesus, not in politics. Not in laws, not in worldly weapons. Now, I don't know what the next decade will bring for the American church. It may bring 
persecution. It may bring imprisonment. Do you realize that the American church is an anomaly in all of the world, in all of history? That for most of history, in most of the world, our brothers and sisters gather together in worship like we are now, afraid that the police will break in and take everyone's name so that they can arrest them later and see that they're fired from their jobs and see that their bank accounts are drained. Their children are taken from them. The American church is an anomaly. So I don't know what the next decade or two will bring, but I can tell you the end of the story. God wins. That is our hope. Well, Elisha has prayed twice. But there's a third prayer yet to come. There is a scene of almost comic relief here in verse 19, where Elisha says to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I'll take you to the man you seek. Now, I have to date myself. I can't read this verse and not think of the original Star Wars. I am old enough to have seen that in the theater. And you may recall that there is a scene in which Obi-Wan and Luke are in a vehicle with the droids that the stormtroopers come up and they're obviously looking for. And they say, we're looking for some droids. And Obi-Wan looks at them and he says, these are not the droids you're looking for. And they look at each other and they go, these aren't the droids we're looking for. And he says, move along. And they say, we'll move along. And they go away. That's almost like what's happening here. Can you imagine that? Elisha comes. Now, who else could they be talking to other than Elisha? There's only Elisha and the Syrians. And, and a random person, supposedly, comes up to them and says, Oh, let me tell you. I know you're blind and in a lot of trouble. I'll take you to the man that you're seeking after. This shows us that this is not just physical blindness. They're out of their minds. They're being irrational. And so the irony here is, is that Elisha does take them to the man they seek. Because who do they really seek? They're really seeking the king of Israel. That's who they've been after. And they only want to get at Elisha because Elisha's stopping them from getting to the king of Israel. And so Elisha says, I'll take you to the one you seek. And he takes them right into the king's stronghold in Samaria. And then Elisha prays that their eyes would be opened. We've now come full circle. We started with a world blind and ignorant of God. Then we saw a short-sighted servant of God blind to the true power of God. Then God revealed his power to his people, and now he reveals himself and his power to the world. And what do they see? They see that they're captives. That they're not the ones that are in control like they thought they were. Those who thought the Lord was made up, a fictional figure, now see rightly the power of God. They now know that their power is nothing before an almighty God. They are not the first nor the last who will see this. Pharaoh saw this at the Red Sea. The Philistines saw it with the Ark and with David. Every kingdom that has tried to wipe the church off the face of the earth has seen this. Whether it be the French Revolution or the Soviet Union or China today, they will see that their power is no match for the power 
of the living God. Do you see this? Is this your hope? That the world would see the reality of the power of God and be brought to their knees. More than that, is this inevitable in your mind? That the world cannot go on blind forever. Now this is where the story really begins to go off the rails from what we expect. We are expecting now a bloodbath. Clearly, the king of Israel is. He's very eager. He repeats himself eagerly in verse 21. Shall I strike them down? No, no, really, really. Shall I strike them down? Isn't that what this is all about? God defeating the world? The problem is we forget that we were the world. When you look at those who shout angrily at God, who fight you in every way. Who do you see? Do you see yourself? Do you see someone in need of grace and mercy? Do you see what God does for them here? They're captive before him, and he lays out in verse 23 a great feast. What does that remind you of? It reminds me of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It reminds me of Romans 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. You see, we expect justice. But here what we see is mercy. Rather than worry about why, does it, why God doesn't do what he should do. We need to simply worship God. Why does God do this? Well, I think it's obvious mercy is not just for the churchly. That's an important point for us today. Because far too often in the church, believers see the world as having two camps... Us and them. And we need to keep them out of our camp. We need to beat them off. We need to hold the line. The Bible knows nothing of the church on defense. When we are told in the Gospels that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, that is an offensive description. The church breaking down the defenses and the barriers of the world. We need to not be satisfied with sustaining our own community. We need to be out in the world bringing the mercy of Jesus Christ to a world. That is how God conquered you and that is how God will conquer the world. The Syrians had an opportunity here to understand that they too were under the Lord's protection. Just as much as Elisha was. Worldly power is nothing before God. And God's power is mighty beyond anything you can imagine. The gospel, beloved, is for everyone. That is our hope. Not just that the world would be beaten back, but that the world would be transformed. God's kingdom is greater than you could ever imagine.
It is so much more than the most powerful kingdom. It is a kingdom of another kind entirely. When the Lord lets us see the unseen, we see His power and His glory, His protection and His blessing. But we also see His mercy and His grace. We see that we are undeserving of such a kingdom. We see that it is only by faith that we can come to God, only by trusting Jesus that we can have hope. The hope of the world is not that God would give us power. The hope of the world is Jesus. That Jesus would change the hearts of sinners like you and me and build his kingdom, not ours. Will you trust him now? Will you look beyond what you can see to the one who died that you might have life? Look to Jesus. He is worthy. Let's pray.